We're going to look at Acts 2:42 through 47 again this week. And uh, in these verses, this is what's happening. Peter's preached the Pentecost sermon, which is a big sermon that gets preached in the Bible. 3,000 people come to saving faith in Jesus. And this is what happens when evangelism occurs in the book of Acts. As soon as people are done preaching the gospel, and as soon as people are done responding to the gospel by faith, church happens. Church always happens. And that's what happens in these verses. We looked at them last week. We're going to look at them again this week. This is the Word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food, their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, as we consider what it means to be your group of people, we all become aware uh, that there are a lot of people we don't like, even those who are numbered among yours. And I pray as we consider this passage, as we see what your church looked like in these early days, as we see how the gospel transformed them, that the same gospel would transform our hearts, dear Lord, that you would teach us, be with us, Holy Spirit, attend to your word, and work in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. What I want to do tonight is I want to, I want to voice a criticism that I've heard made about every single group, and I just mean any group, not necessarily ministry, but just any social group. This is a criticism I've heard about basically any group, and you've heard it too. I've leveled this criticism at people. People have leveled this criticism at groups I'm a part of. You've leveled this criticism at people, and you've been a part of group that people have leveled this criticism at. And this is the criticism. They're not welcoming, right? Nobody talked to me. I can't crack into that group. And what I don't mean by that, and what we usually don't mean, is we don't mean they're not initially friendly, because most groups, again, I'm talking about in the biggest sense of the word, Churches, organizations, down to the small sense of the word, roommates. Most groups have initial, initial kind of friendliness to them. Some of them aren't. They have some initial warmth, but once the warmth wears off, you're left then with a sense of, yeah, they were warm, but I'm not really welcome to be a part. And maybe that's the way you feel in this group. Maybe it's the way you feel in other groups that you're part of around campus. And on some sen- in some sense... You also have to be reasonable and understand this about yourself. You can't be a part of every group. It's not possible. But as people made in God's image, God, the triune God, who is a community in and of himself, so we're like him, we still hate not being a part of groups that actually we don't even have the interest or the time to be a part of. We just hate seeing a group we're not a part of. So we have to be reasonable in one sense, But nonetheless, I want to look at this passage and discuss further what it means for a group to be a Christian group. And I'm not just talking about RUF. This certainly applies to RUF. It applies to other ministries. But in a sense, it really applies to God's people in its fullest sense. And last week, what we did is we talked about verse 42, about the things that they did together. Um, what are sometimes called the marks of the church, the external practices. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to Scripture, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. 
And what I want to do this week is I want to ask the question of, if that's what a Christian community does together, what's the heart of the community? If that's what it looks like on the outside, what does it look like in here? And that's what I want to look at this week. And what I want us to do is to see four things. Okay, and here's the bad news. Nick Farkas told me I shouldn't have put conclusions. So how do we have this kind of heart? Unless the conclusion was only going to be three minutes long, because when I get there, you all sent like your mental time clocks of like, oh, he's at the conclusion, so we have three more minutes. Y'all, the conclusion is going to be 15 minutes, okay? The first four points are going to go fast, all right? So don't sweat it. But when I say conclusion, I realize everybody thinks, oh, conclusion, we got three more minutes, right? Okay, think tonight, change your little mental time clock. Conclusion, I got 15 more minutes, all right? I'm for you. Um, what I want us to see in these first four points that are actually going to be brief is the heart of Christian fellowship. If the being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to Scripture, and to prayer, to the Lord's Supper, and to fellowship is what they look like on the outside, in these verses, actually the following verses, we also have a picture of the heart of the people that are in that group. And the first thing we have to note is, I'll just say this at the beginning, this is the passage some people point to and say, oh, the Bible te- teaches communism. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not paying careful attention to this text or other texts in the New Testament. What's not being depicted is a community in which members are required to enter into a social contract where they no longer possess private property and agree to redistribution. That's not the picture here. People retain their private property, but when they saw brothers and sisters in need, they saw what they had and they gave. This is not mandatory This is sacrificial care for brothers and sisters. It's voluntary. It's not required. It's compassion. And it's compassion, and this is the first point, it's compassion out of abundance. It's sacrificial care out of abundance. And this is what you've got to get. When I say that, it's not sacrificial care giving out, given out of an abundance of resources. It's not given out of a... What I don't mean by that is not that they're giving, well, I have so much. I have so much time. This is not a picture of actually wealthy people or, or I have so much money. This is not a picture of wealthy people redistributing their wealth to poor people. That's not what's being depicted here. It's sacrificial care that's given not out of an abundance of resources, but out of an abundance of grace. They didn't have a lot of things. What they had was a lot of grace. And it was their response. It was the grace of Jesus overflowing from their life into others. It was the response of the mercy they've received from Jesus. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He's actually collecting money from various churches to support the needs of other brothers and sisters. And he's writing in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, and he's excited about the generosity of one of the poorest churches in the New Testament in Macedonia. And he tells the church at Corinth, he says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, out of their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The poor people, not just in poverty, in extreme poverty, gave a ton away, not because they had an abundance of things, they had an abundance of grace. Later in 2 Corinthians 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work, especially 
giving. You see, it's an abundance of grace that allows us to give, not an abundance of things. And so when we talk about sacrificial care, which goes way beyond simply physical and monetary needs, but to also emotional and relational and social and spiritual needs as well, for the Christian, it's never, never an excuse that I don't have enough money, time, or energy. Because you're not giving out of an abundance of money, time, or energy. Sacrificial care doesn't draw from an abundance of those things. It draws from an abundance of grace. It's the first part of the heart of this Christian community. That it's this care for one another out of an abundance for grace. But not only that, it's sacrificial care out of empathy. See, what sympathy is, and we're not knocking sympathy, it's good. Sympathy is actually when you don't experience someone else's pain but you're aware of it on some kind of mental level that they're experiencing pain. And while you don't feel it yourself, you have pity on them. And that's good. That's fine. Their pain is real, and you know it's real to them, but you don't feel it. That's not what's being depicted here. Empathy means you actually feel someone else's pain. That you enter into their distress and their need and their emptiness and their darkness, into their loneliness, into their anxiety... It actually means that you're so closely knit to someone that their pain is yours. Something I hope we do in RUF is we never soft pedal what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to love our King and to love His people. And Jesus demonstrates at the, co- at the cross that love is painful. To be a part of a Christian community, to be so knit so tightly to people, it means you experience their pain. That means more pain enters into your life if you jump in on this Christianity thing. We're never going to soft pedal it here. It's hard. Jesus promises that. In some, way, in some ways, I don't think I ever experienced empathy until God gave me my own family. I'm so selfish, it took me like 27 years to experience, to get to the first moment of empathy. But my family, my wife and my children are so integral to who I am now that I start to feel their pain a little bit. And I feel their need, and I feel their insecurity. And see, in this picture, the individuals felt the need of the people around them so deeply that what we're told is they held what they had in common. They said, what's mine is yours. Whatever I have can be yours. It's yours at any moment. And you can only feel that what mine is yours and what's yours is mine if you also feel that your pain and your need are my pain and my need. Paul, later in his letters, loves to describe the church as a body, right? Well, what happens when you roll your ankle? Your whole body knows it, and your whole body adjusts to it. Your leg takes off some of the other weight. Your hand reaches out for something. Your hips shift. Your whole body is so keenly aware and so attached to the pain in one part of your body that the rest of your body immediately forgets what it's doing and adjust to alleviate that pain right there. That's what's being pictured right here. We're so connected to each other's pain that what we have is just, it's yours. The Christian community, the heart of the Christian community is, cares for one another out of abundance of grace, out of a keen awareness of each other's difficulty and pain, but also it's a sacrificial care that's out of love and not out of guilt. And the reality is guilt and compassion, they actually work really well as a sub-Christian motivator. Here's the one we always hear, right, on Stewardship Sunday or when someone's preaching who leads a mercy ministry where they need money. 
where they work in the third world. You have so much here, right? Y'all have so much. You're college students. You all think you're poor, but anybody that's done a missions, uh, missions trip in a third world country knows the poorest college students are still the upper class of this globe. Y'all don't want to believe it. Go on a mission trip. You'll see it, right? So you have these missionaries come and tell you about how much you have, and they tell you to give, right? Because you have so much. You have so much more than these other people. And the truth is, out of that guilt and out of that sense of compulsion, you, you can actually get some money. You can actually give some money. You can kind of you can listen to tonight and be like, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian community, for us to be warm, to be welcoming, all that kind of stuff. And you can just decide that you're going to do like two nice things to people you don't know very well this week just because you feel guilty that you don't do that very often. That'll work for a while. But that, it's obvious that the Bible doesn't think that guilt out of having a ton should motivate you to give because the givers who are praised don't have anything. See what I'm saying? The church at Macedonia, they weren't thinking, we have so much, we should give it away. They were thinking, we don't have anything, but it doesn't matter. They don't have guilt over having too much because they have less money than possibly the people they're giving to. The people who are praised in the Bible, they don't have anything when they're giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, Each one of you must give as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. What God wants and loves is a cheerful giver. The question then is, why would someone who has nothing give a ton? Because we would think, as Americans, guilt's the best motivator, right? Why does anybody sacrificially, and remember what the word sacrificially means, it means painful. It means giving up something that you like, that costs you, and you get nothing in return. You don't get reward. You don't get recognition. Whatever it is you give, time, money, emotional energy, social standing, you give to serve someone else. Here's the test. Try giving a large amount of money to someone and never letting anybody know, including that person. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Why would people who have nothing give away a time? Not because they feel guilty. Because they love. The heart of this Christian community is a heart that's overflowing with grace. It's a heart that feels deeply connected to each other's pain. And it's a heart full of love. And this is the last point. This is verse 47. It's a heart that's attractive to the world. When he finishes this description of the church stuff that just starts happening right after evangelism. He says this, day by day, they were attending to the temple together. So they were going to hear the preaching of the word. They were breaking bread in their homes. They were taking the Lord's Supper. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Talking about the nations, the non-believers, the people who aren't in. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Here's something, I, I would love this actually for my sake, but I think it'd be good for us all to do. Here's something you can do, right? Here's practical. I don't do this very often. Do this one thing this week. Talk to one to three unbelieving friends and simply ask them this. Do you think Christians relate well to one another? Institutionally, among churches, denominations, among ministries, and also individually. What do you think about Christian friendships when you see two Christians relate to each other? Your unbelieving friends do have stories. They do make observations. 
ask that question. I would love it, actually, if y'all would let me know how those conversations go. Because look at the passage. They were doing all this church business. They worshiped together, ate together, received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And how did it look to the people standing on the outside? The people standing on the outside loved it. They wanted in on it. God's people found favor in the community, and the Lord added to their number day by day. Here's the first thing. Christian fellowship is not lived in isolation from the world. Christian fellowship is not lived in isolation from the world. I said this a couple of weeks ago. There's no such thing as a Christian bubble. If it's a bubble, it's not Christian. Christian fellowships lived out before the world. Not in a prideful display, but in humble joy. And the purpose is to have the kind of lifestyle and fellowship, not so that people say, who are they? But actually to have the kind of friendship that makes people say, who is it that they worship? Because we've all seen Christians who draw attention to themselves with their own sense of personal piety in public, right? And it's weird, makes all of us uncomfortable, makes us feel guilty as Christians because we're kind of uncomfortable with how Christian they're being out in public, right? Yes, yes, okay. For the record, Jesus doesn't like it either in the Gospels. He gets really upset with the people who pray to be seen in public. So then what does it look like for Christians to draw attention to Jesus before the world? He's telling us right here. What it looks like is the way you relate to your brothers and your sisters. That's how the world sees Jesus is in your friendships, forgiving one another, confronting one another, humbly repenting to one another, seeking forgiveness, being willing to be inconvenienced by one another, being patient, being long-suffering with one another, being joyful together, being kind to one another. The church's common life, the life of God's people together, gives power to the witness of the gospel. Here's what hasn't happened so far. There hasn't been an evangelism training seminar. Hasn't happened. No one was trained in a cool little conversational technique that you can do at Cool Beans to convince someone into be a Christian, right? (laughs) Hasn't happened, right? There's no big Christian rally with posters all over campus that we're all trying to awkwardly invite our non-Christians to but not offend them that we're kind of inviting them to a Christian event at the same time. Hasn't happened. No posters. The main vehicle for ministry to the world in this passage, is the fellowship Christians have with one another. Evangelism, it's more than a rally. It's more than a conversational presentation. This is what evangelism is. We're going to talk about this more later in the semester. But evangelism is, put simply, is just getting people to want Jesus. And if we, as the church, are the body of Christ, then when the world sees us be Christ to one another, and they look in on those friendships and say, I want in on friendships like that. Wanting in on the body of Christ is wanting Christ. Because he's the source, and he's the center, and he's the love, and he's the foundation, and he's the head, and he's the savior, and he's the king of our fellowship. If we want to be a community that kind of blows the world's mind... The question is not how can I be trained in this technique. It's actually do you love your brother? Do you love your sister? Do you serve them? Do you forgive them? 
one preacher actually makes this point, kind of reflecting on this passage. He says, The truth is, the most successful period of evangelism in the church's history was the period of 300 years after this sermon. From this sermon for the next 300 years, there were 120 Christians before Acts 2. There were 3,120 Christians after Acts 2. From that moment, for the next 300 years, evangelism occurred at a much higher rate than it's ever happened in church history. And this is what this guy says. He says, functionally, this is a church history guy, functionally speaking, the Sunday services of the church were a minor, almost incidental instrument of the evangelistic triumph. What he's saying is, he's not saying that when the Lord's people gathered together on Sunday, it wasn't unimportant. He says it wasn't about evangelism. It was very important, but it was not evangelistic. The service was designed for the worship of God by the people of God. The word was preached comprehensively with no thought of leaving out what unbelievers would find uninteresting or offensive. Unbelievers actually weren't even allowed to remain through the entire service in a couple of circumstances. And yet, when the church was fueled by such times together before God, Christians were never more effective in winning their neighbors to Christ and the general witness of the church was more powerful than it's ever been. These, the first 300 years of the church were the most seeker, unfriendly services the church has ever seen. Nothing funny happened. There were no jokes. There was no clever opening illustration involving the Matrix. That never happened, right? <laughs> no references to a cool movie that totally like makes you think the pastor's cool because you thought a pastor would never watch a movie like that, right? We always love those moments. They only sang psalms, and the gospel grew faster in the world than it ever did. Why? Because of their life together. And maybe we need to spend less time strategizing about what would be cool, and maybe we just should start to look at our love for our brothers and our sisters when we think about evangelism. Because if the world saw the kind of friendship here as it did, God's people would find favor in the world. This is, this is why we're doing His International, is to go be Christians together before the nations. That's what that is. It's for them to see what Christians are like and what Christians are like together. All right, 15-minute conclusion, if you can handle it. Remember, not three minutes. Fifteen, okay? How do we have this kind of heart? You can't have Christian fellowship without Christ at the center. You can't have Christian fellowship without Christ at the center. It seems obvious. We're all seeking friendship. We're all seeking community. We're all seeking companionship. We all want to be a part of a group. That's part of what makes us human is the idea of exclusion is really one of our kind of most base fears. And usually we want it because we want just for the sake of wanting to be part of something. What does a Christ-centered relationship look like? What does a Christ-centered community or a group look like? What does that mean? Here's what it means to be in on that kind of community. It means that your goal and your friendship, not out of a plastic sense, not out of a project sense, not where you can't think about people in a loving way, but your goal and your friendship is that your friend just rests in Jesus, that they find peace in Jesus, that they cry to Jesus, that they find patience in Jesus, that they find He is peaceful, that He is just that they find out that your king is a good king. 
That's what a Christ-centered relationship is. Christ-centered friendship is when you're not all about the friendship and what you get out of it and how you've been hurt by it and how they should have done something else or how you've been excluded and how they make you feel in the friendship. Christ-centered friendship is when your goal is for them to know your king. Is there a marker up here? In a Christ-centered friendship, there's three parties. There's you, there's them, and there's Jesus. And this is what we all want. We all want to deeply be connected to people. That'll never make you happy. And that's not Christ-centered friendship. Here's what Christ-centered friendship is. When you care deeply about that relationship right there, and you seek that and other people, when this is so beautiful to you that everyone around you, you are dying for them to meet that, to meet Him. And when all you want is people to know your king, you'll do whatever it takes. In a regular friendship where you just want friendship for friendship's sake because you don't want to be lonely, you'll only speak the truth. You'll only actually confront bad things in a relationship if it's not going to cost you personally or relationally. You don't want people to get upset with you. You don't want to get them mad, so you'll back off. and You'll, you'll kind of back off because nobody wants to be told they're a sinner, right? Whether they hurt someone else. So you'll kind of tiptoe around that. You'll try to learn how to live with it. If Christ is at the center of your friendship, you'll confront sin because you hate how much their sin impedes their understanding of the goodness of Jesus. This is what, if for those of you who know Soren, he, he's an intern here, he left. This is what Soren's beautiful about. He didn't care whether or not you liked him. He just wanted to know you're a sinner and the king is good. Seriously. It was beautiful, was it not? This is ministry to me. He didn't care if you didn't like him. He's going to call sin, sin. He's going to tell you about the grace of his Savior. It was sweet. He offended a lot of people, and he, and he shepherded a lot of people toward Christ. He did, because he wasn't afraid, because he wanted people to meet his king. In a regular friendship, you'll make sacrifice, you'll share, you'll pursue people if there's something to be gained, if you can benefit from it. In a Christian friendship, you'll just die for people all day long. In a regular friendship, you'll, there'll be a limit to your patience, because you can only take so much, because people are so irritating, are they not? Right? roommates, whoever it is, because after a while it's just too much to endure them, and there's always a breaking point in a relationship. In a Christian friendship, you'll just endure, and you'll endure, and you'll endure, because you want them to know you're king. In a regular friendship, you'll keep score. In a Christian friendship, you'll just give, and you'll not even notice. In a regular friendship, you'll have this idyllic picture of a perfect friendship that it's supposed to be, and when you reach it, it's just going to be awesome, Right? In a Christian friendship, you get that Christian friendship requires death, requires forgiveness, it requires sacrifice. There's not this permanent kind of uber-cheesy, idyllic, happy friendship you're going to reach. Because in a Christian friendship, you know two things to be true that will always be present in your friendship. You're going to sin against each other, and by the mercy of Christ, you're going to forgive each other. That's just messy and hard, and it's so much sweeter. Christian friendship actually begins when you stop longing for friendship in and of itself and you start longing for your friends to know your king. And the easiest way to determine whether or not your friendship is Christ-centered, whether or not the life and the power and the center of your friendship is Jesus himself, is simply this. What happens when your friends turn out to be enemies? We're all enemies of our friends at some point on varying levels with varying intensity. In a regular friendship, 
through coercion, maybe through rage, maybe through hate, maybe through gossip or slander, maybe through coldness, right? You seek to kind of turn them back to seeing your way. Otherwise, the friendship's over, right? In a Christian friendship, when your friends turn out to be enemies, you should keep loving them. And it's hurt, and it's painful, and you delight to continue to love them and to pursue them and to seek them out. You know what I hope RUF is, what the church is, what a Christian fellowship is? It's a group of enemies together being transformed by grace. That's what it is. You can't have Jesus at the center of your relationships unless you love him. You see, that's the, bit, that's the clincher here. You've got to think Jesus is awesome. Otherwise, you're just going to be plastic trying to fulfill your Christian duty. I've got to make somebody like Jesus. I feel guilty about the way I'm not a Christian friend to everybody. So I'm going to try to talk about Jesus more so I can kind of fill up kind of my little guilt tank and all that kind of stuff, right? You've got to actually love Jesus. You can't short-circuit the Christian life and do Christian things without a Christian heart. You can do a semblance of those things, and your heart will be motivated by fear, fear that you're not right, that you're not authentic, that you're a sham, and so you have to do these things, right? You can be motivated by pride because you live it, and others don't, and that feels good. You can be motivated by guilt because you don't believe Jesus loves you. He didn't pay it all. He did some good things, but your slate's not clean. It can't be. You're still trying to pay him back. The reason we find these things hard to do and the reason why the pictures of fellowship and brotherly love here that we talked about last week and this week are hard to hear is because we don't do those things and deciding you're just going to do it isn't going to work. Everybody in this room has decided at some point in their life that I'm going to stop doing X today, right? Everybody in this room has decided at some point in their life, today I'm going to start whatever it is, X, right? Did it work? No. Let's get a collective no here, Right? Okay, that was weak, man. Tanner, you're like the guy that gets things going, man. Come on. It didn't work. Listening to this description of fellowship and setting, I'm going to do that for the first time. It's not going to work. You can walk out here and do some nice things for a day or two, probably not even that long. It won't work. We're trying to circumvent the hard and the deep and the terrifying grace of repentance because we're impatient, right? We're a fast result society. I talked about CrossFit. Everybody wanted to know how fast I get results at CrossFit last week, right? Is that faster than B90X? Is it faster than B90X, right? You get any information you want within seconds on your phone. You never have to wait for it. Everybody wants the quick diet plan, you know, the quick workout plan. What you want to do is you want to do your schoolwork as fast as you can because we're not interested in learning it anymore. We're interested in getting the end result, right? The grade that gets us the job that we also don't care about so we can get the money that we do care about, right? <laughs> Right? We want the quick results. We want to do the activity necessary, but we don't actually want to love the subject. We want instant instant obedience. So we love preachers that get up and tell tell us a list of five things you have to do, right? Here's my question. Now, you know... My time is y'all's time. I eat lunch with people, grab coffee with people all the time. If you don't know me, please stop me. My information's on there. <clears throat> but I'm going to tell you the question I'm going to ask you now because I've been figuring out how to ask questions just to learn people's story. And one of the questions I always ask is like, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? How'd you come to faith? I'm not asking that question anymore. I'm done with that question. You're not getting that one. Because when I ask that question, this is the answer I get. 
nine times out of nine. <laughs> Saw that? <laughs> People tell me how many youth retreats they went on or mission trips, how they feel guilty about not reading their Bible, and in the worst circumstances, they tell me about who they're better than. Here's my question for you tonight, for me, but also if you don't know me and you ask me to get coffee, I'm going to ask you this question so get ready. Do you love Jesus? When did you start to love him? Christians, do you love Jesus? See, the problem is not that we're not doing the right things. The problem is that we don't love Jesus. And so you've got to stop thinking, Britain, tell me to do something. I'm telling you, love Jesus. And it's not, actually in some ways, it's not really impatience that's the problem in our hearts. It's actually all the other loves in our heart that loom larger than our love for him. So how can we begin to love him? How can we begin to serve, begin to give of ourselves to his people, to have hearts of glad generosity? Y'all, it is a, it's out of drinking deeply of his generosity. He has given so much to us who deserve nothing. A beautiful picture of his selfless love. I was listening to a preacher this morning, and he just talks about Jesus' final moments with the disciples in John 14 through 16. It's called the farewell discourse, last meal. Hours before he's going to get arrested. Hours before he'll die on the cross. Hours before the, the 12 men he spent three years with every single day pouring his life into. Hours before they're going to go turn around and say, we don't know this guy. His 12 best friends are all going to betray him. He's fixing to do the hardest thing anyone ever has or will do. And in his last moments, this is what it should have looked like. It should have looked like his friends coming around him, right? And comforting him. And putting their arms on him and weeping for him. That's not what happens in the final moments with his best friends. He gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. He comforts them. He says, I am going away, but I'm going away to be with the Father, and we are going to send a comforter, a helper back for you. I'm going with the, the way to the Father for you to prepare a place for you. And the Father and I are, and the Spirit are going to give ourselves to you. And don't let your hearts be troubled. Do you see how full of grace he is? He was fixing to do the hardest thing in the world. He was comforting people around him. Love is not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. And he conforms us into his image with his kind of love, not by compulsion and not by guilt, but by loving us as trivial and as banal and as selfish and myopic and trite and petty as we are. Because we're all panicking about the people that are going to mess up our PlayStation 2 ID and the stats on it, right? Or our clothes that are... I mean, like, we're so petty every day. This is me included. I was petty... My children were sick. Y'all might not come back to RUF. My children were sick on Sunday night, all night long. I was angry with them in their pain. I need a Savior. You don't love Jesus and you can't start to love Him. You can't start to love His people in the way depicted here as long as you hold a stiff arm up to His grace. And why would you? I don't know if y'all had these moments when you were a kid, but you remember those moments when you were a kid where you were so angry with your parents, you actually refused to receive good things from them? It's like the most foolish bitterness in the world. (laughs) 
we're all sitting here saying, I want to be Christian-y, but don't tell me that my heart is hard. Don't tell me that I'm full of rebellion, that Jesus demands all of me, even the things that I'm hiding, even the things I'm ashamed of, things I can never tell anyone about, as well as the stuff I love and the things that I'm trying to deny and say, well, the Bible doesn't really say I can't do that, right? Because everybody else is doing it. Jesus wants all of you. And this is the beauty of it. He wants all of you so that he can shower and cover and pour and immerse his grace on all of you. So stop trying to act like a Christian and just bring all of you to Christ and say, can you heal this? And what he says to the guilt-ridden is this. To the guilt-ridden, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. To the broken and to the weak, he will not put out a smoldering wing. To the addicted, he has the power to kill sin. And to the abused, reveling in your anger and your rage, he says, blessed are those who mourn. I'm going to give you the kingdom of heaven. And to the one who says, yeah, I like being a Christian, but I want to do certain things that everybody else gets to do, right? And I want to pretend like the Bible doesn't address my sexuality or my materialism. He says to you what he says to the rich young ruler. Give it all to me. Christ costs you everything and nothing at the same time. Because all he asks of you is just a despair of yourself. And that's a sweet place to be. This is the way C.S. Lewis said it. He says, the price of Christ is something in a way much easier than moral effort. It's just to want him. And it's true that the wanting itself would be beyond our power except for one fact. The world is so built that the wanting, that the world's so built to help us desert our own satisfactions and they desert us. What he's saying is the world is so built that we never find what we actually want in the world. War and trouble and finally old age take from us one by one all those things that our natural self hoped for when it set out. I love this. Begging is our only wisdom. And losing everything in the end makes it easiest for to be beggars. And on those terms, mercy will receive us. Jesus purchases all of you with his blood, with his death, with his atoning work at the cross. When you are his, he takes all that you've given him, all your money, all your idols, all your sexuality, all your relationships, all your brokenness, and he uses them to now build his kingdom, which is good, which is lasting, which is enjoyable, and which is yours. And if we, want to, if we begin to love Jesus so that this fellowship, so that Christian friendships can look like him, what we do is we bring all our other loves and set them at his feet and hear him say, you're always mine. All I have is yours. You can't outlast my grace. Because you see, when we're describing the heart of Christian fellowship, we're describing Jesus. Because he sacrificed out of an abundance of grace. He knew deeply our pain. He sacrificed out of love. And it was a love that's so beautiful that the world sees it. The world gets changed. You know, this group's messed up, this RUF group. All your group that you think aren't messed up are actually more messed up because you think they're not messed up if you're following me right there. All the groups are messed up. For, but for us to begin to grow into the kind of fellowship described here, what we don't need is a better welcome committee and a way to warmly receive guests. We need our Savior to become more beautiful. Let's pray.